Hello, and welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm Matt Cantorino. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Bill Kaufman, a writer, editor, and journalist from Batavia, New York. Bill is the author of nearly a dozen books, including Dispatches from the Muck Dog Gazette, a mostly affectionate account of a small town's fight to survive, Ain't My America, the long noble history of anti-war conservatism and middle American anti-imperialism, and Forgotten Founder, Drunken Prophet, the life of Luther Martin. His columns and occasional reviews have appeared in many publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, The Nation, The Guardian, The American Conservative, The Independent, and elsewhere. He also wrote the screenplay for the film Copperhead and is a founding editor of the website Front Porch Republic. We'll be joined today by Gil Barndoller, who is Senior Research Fellow at the Center for the Study of Statesmanship, and I'll turn it over to him to get us started. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I've been a longtime reader of yours going back for, gosh, 15, 20 years and, uh, and read your, not all of your books yet, but, but quite a few of them and, and your columns all over the place. So really, uh, this is a treat. Um, Thank you. Yeah, thanks for, thanks, for, thanks for coming. But we're here primarily um, to talk about your new book. You're the editor most recently of the Congressional Journal of, Bar- of Barbara B. Canaveral, Jr., uh, 1968 to 1984. So can you tell us about your former congressman, why he was so important, um, why we should, why someone should dive into uh, his journals of, of an American political life that seems, um, seems pretty distant in this, in this moment? Yeah, he was, uh, Barbara Carnival was, uh, by acclamation, the, uh, the most respected member of the House of his era. He uh, was elected in 64 in the teeth of the, uh, the LBJ landslide. He was a Republican from upstate New York, uh, a largely rural district. Uh, served 20 years. Uh, uh, Richard Fenno, who was uh, uh, the dean of congressional scholars, said that Carnival was as widely and highly respected as any member of Congress in the last half of the 20th century. He uh, <clears throat> he was a model member of Congress in, in many ways. And uh, this particular book is uh, part of a really rare genre. It is uh, diaries, journals of members of Congress. I mean, these, you know, there have been a handful published over the years, but they're almost always uh, uh, advertisements, essentially, in which the uh, uh, the member depicts himself uh, as a sort of valorous knight of the round table going out to, to slay the, uh, you know, uh, the uh, the scoundrels of the opposing party. Uh, Conable's uh, journal, which is, you know, obviously written in, in real time, uh, is uh, is kind of a candid Frank Warts and all look at, uh, you know, how, well, how a bill becomes a law. Uh, and it has uh, really interesting also uh, depictions of the, uh, the fearless and, and spearless leaders of his, uh, you know, of that, of, of that period from, you know, from, from Nixon through Reagan and including all the, uh, all the really significant uh, house figures of that time. Yeah. I was struck, as you said, and I think you said in your introduction that he's, he was a very, um, one, an incredibly intelligent, well-read man, and, and some, I think some people say maybe didn't always wear it lightly, but, um, but was super sharp and was considered such by his, by his peers, by journalists. But he was not, um, as you just kind of said, he wasn't a, a petty man and certainly wasn't an egotist. And I was struck in the, in the journals by how often he's self-critical, you know, kind of critiquing his, his first sort of media forays and doing television, 
saying he's getting negative letters from around the country. And uh, he's pretty introspective and, and um, without, without navel gazing, you know, it's, it's, a, it's yeah, a very, yeah, very, very much. And there's this, uh, there's this interesting, uh, oh, there's a sort of plaintive quality to it. There's poetic melancholy almost, you know, and uh, frequently asking, you know, why am I here? You know, I'm not getting anything done. Obviously, you know, you're in the, uh, you're in the minority for 20 years in the house and he was ranking a uh, Republican member of ways and means for most of that time. But if we go back a little, he was, uh, he was one of the most, I think, placed figure American political figures of, of our time. He's born in uh, 1922 in a place called Warsaw, New York, uh, rural Western part of the state, which was uh, almost sort of ground zero, the, the burned over district of the first half of the 19th century, you know, where there all sorts of uh, reform enthusiasms, uh, in, in Warsaw in particular, uh, abolition, although his family had also, he was, he was from a long line of uh, suffragists. His grandmother uh, was a good friend of Susan B. Anthony's. Um, he has a great line in there. We're saying he came by his feminism, honestly, not just. Right. He wasn't just being a milk just being George Life's doormat was sort of his take, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And he, uh, and his, uh, his father had been, uh, his father was the was the Wyoming County judge for I think 28 years, succeeded by Connell's brother for 32 years, which is why today miscreants in the county to our south uh, have justice inflicted upon them in the Connell courtroom. Uh, but they was uh, but this upbringing, this upbringing, very strong in the sense of civic responsibility and what uh, and Gore Vidal called proprietary patriotism, the sense that you know the country belongs to you, the country belongs to us. You know we have to take responsibility for it. But it was leavened with this interesting agrarian um, eccentricity. Uh, Connable's father, uh, as I say, he was, a, he was a judge, but they also had a farm, um, and he would recite poetry to the cows as they milked uh, them, uh, as did Connable and his brother. And the, an interesting thing is that the other kind of most famous uh, person, a native son of ours, uh, was a novelist named John Gardner, uh, noted in, a notable writer in the 70s, early 80s, uh, uh, Sunlight Dialogues, October Light, Grendel, some others. Uh, he also grew up in a family in which uh, in which the parents recited poetry to the cows. So I'm thinking we, mu we, we must have the most literate cows in the country in this part. Um, anyway, he was, uh, you know, he was, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, with Cornell, graduated uh, at the age of 19. He'd been, uh, at Cornell, he'd been a... Uh, uh, one of the organizers of the America First Committee, because he came, he, you know, he, we forget this now, but there was very, you know, there, there was once a strong strain of, of rural pacifism in this country, you know, and the, uh, the default position was we should not involve ourselves in foreign wars. Connell's father was a, you know, Republican judge, very strong pacifist, was very much opposed to his son joining the military. But uh, after Pearl Harbor, uh, Connell concluded that this was our fight. Uh, he joined, he, uh, as a second lieutenant, he went ashore at Iwo Jima. Uh, and uh, as he said, as they was, he was the base of Mount Suribachi, it occurred to him, I'm going to die on my father's birthday. Um, he came through without a scratch, uh, came home, uh, graduated first in his class, Cornell Law School, uh, eventually moved uh, a few miles north to uh, my hometown, Batavia, New York. Absolutely threw himself into civic affairs as if he were auditioning for a role in a Sinclair Lewis novel. I mean, he was in the United, you know, the United Fund, the Boy Scouts, Rotary, all this sort of thing. Um, 
and got involved in Republican politics, which was, you know, part of his part of his pedigree. Um, and the interesting thing is that uh, for a figure who in later years might have seen, you know, a long serving Republican congressman, all he's got, it must be state establishmentarian or whatever. Um, he began his career as a uh, uh, an insurgent. The uh, the local state senator was uh, this dishonest uh, figure who was also uh, the powerful chairman of the uh, New York State uh, uh, Senate Finance Committee. Uh, Carnival went to the uh, Carnival went to the Republican Party chairman in Genesee County uh, and said, "Look, I'm not I'm not going to be involved in the campaign this year if that bastard Walston Irwin is on the ticket because he's a crook." Uh, the camp, the uh, Republican Party chairman sort of sat him down and said, look, you do this and uh, your career is over. It was one of those, you know, you'll never work again in this town, punk moments. Uh, Carnival challenged Irwin in the primary. Irwin backed down. Carnival defeated a, an Irwin flunky. Served two years in New York State to Senate where he uh, distinguished himself by the heroic defense of rural schools against the technocratic onslaught of consolidation. And was elected in, in, in 64 to the House. As, uh, and very quickly, uh, you know, obviously there were, you know, Republicans were a, uh, or a rump party then uh, after the Goldwater debacle, but very quickly distinguished himself as a kind of a comer and uh, a guy to watch and rose very quickly. One of the uh, a, a few examples, I think, of, uh, of pure merit being recognized in that, uh, in that body. Thank you. Yeah. And you, you mentioned sort of in passing um, to one of his traits that kind of stood out to me and, and you've written about his personal sense of rectitude, I, I think uh, was pretty striking. Right. I mean, he I guess his attitude toward Nixon is maybe, maybe um, encapsulates that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he had actually been a uh, uh, rather to his embarrassment. He'd been a uh, uh, one of the House's most consistent supporters of Nixon. Uh, he had no personal affection for him, really. But but he saw it. Carnival had a. Uh, I mean, he would generally be considered a, like a moderate Republican. But I mean, that's such a uh, such an excitement draining word. You know, it's uh, it just suggests a sort of mushy, you know, ball of nothingness. But in fact, he had an interesting blend of you know, fiscal parsimony. Uh, he was a reformist. He was a constitutionalist, uh, and he was very much. He was very much a decentralist uh, within limits, <laughs> uh, and he. Uh, certain Nixon initiatives like revenue sharing, you know, which uh, sent federal tax monies back to the, the, the states and the cities. He was in favor of those. He was probably the key house figure in getting revenue sharing enacted. So he was, you know, he was uh, allied with Nixon. Uh, but uh, uh, Watergate, uh, it's funny. He was, uh, the, the, the journals are very interesting in Watergate. Um, all along, he's complained that, you know, Nixon is, Nixon is distant and remote from Congress. Nixon seems to have no interest in, you know, the Republican Party nationally, solely interested in himself. Uh, and uh, and yet he's uh, he's unwilling to say he'll vote for impeachment because he has this kind of Boy Scout notion that he should read all the evidence. Um, in fact, he shocks Wilbur Mills when Mills Mills is talking to him about it. And, uh, you know, I can vote, assuming Congress will vote Democratic for committee chair, right? Right, yeah, yeah. vote ways and means. Yeah. Um, and Carnival says, well, geez, I, you know, I have to read the evidence first. And it's like, wow, what, you know, <laughs> this is astonishing. Uh, but yeah, once, uh, <clears throat> once the, uh, once Carnival concluded that Nixon had lied to him and lied to the country, uh, he was unforgiving. Nick, Nixon wrote him letters, <clears throat> you know, of apology or explanation Absolutely after his resignation and Carnival, yeah. Carnival refused to answer them. Um, yeah. 
which yeah, the the, the, the rectitude is. Uh, I mean, very early in his uh, in only his uh, second term, he was uh, uh, named to the Ways and Means Committee, and he saw uh, he saw members essentially trading votes for uh, for favors to lobbyists, um, and he established then uh, a standard that he kept throughout his career. He refused to accept any contribution greater than fifty dollars. Um, it's kind of interesting in the journals because Gerald Ford, who's the House Minority Leader, and others are saying, "Look, man, you're you know you're making us look bad. I mean, this is you know this is what this is puritanical. You know what are you doing this for?" But he uh, he absolutely refused to to bend from that. And in fact, in 1974, uh, that was the one really really tough race he had. It was the Watergate election, of course. Nixon or Carnival had been identified as a kind of a Nixon ally. The Democrats put up a really strong candidate, the vice mayor of Rochester, Mitch Costanza, who was this, uh, this, uh, this, this, this fiery populist. He struggled more closer to Rochester, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah the, the district was kind of like one third city of Rochester, one third the western suburbs and one third the rural district. And Connable was very much of the rural district. You know, he said, look, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable in the rest of the district. I make these sort of platitudinous pro-party speeches, but I can really only be myself in the, in the rural part of the district. And Midge was from Midge was from the city of Rochester. Back when I was a kid, I uh, I handed out brochures and handbills and such for Midge Costanza. She was, uh, she, was a, she was a neat lady who went on to an interesting career later. She was briefly in the Carter White or in the yeah the Carter White House uh, before she got into uh, into the soup. Uh, and even then, Connable refused to bend from the fifty dollar. Uh, uh, per person uh, uh, donation limit. He was outspent about two to one by Midge. Midge was actually up in the polls late in the campaign, but Connable pulled it out by, I don't know, 10, 12 percentage points or so. Um, one, and, and, you know, another thing that was really, really distinctive about him, um, he wrote his own newsletters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every, I mean, every member of Congress sends these things out. These are taxpayer subsidized jokes. I mean, they're just, you know, pictures of the, the beaming congressman shaking hands with some supplicant constituent, handing him a, you know, a check or something like that. Um, you know, they're all, they're just written by staffers. I mean, they're just they're garbage for the most part. But his, you had a request, right? He only, you had to actually ask him for it. Yeah. You actually had to just ask him for it. Everyone in the district. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And quite a few people did ask for it and they were, they were thoughtful. They were ruminative. They were pedagogical. I mean, he viewed their, he viewed their uh, purposes partly, partly educational. I mean, he, you know, he'd say, look, this, you know, this month we're talking about Social Security. And he sort of lay out what the issues were, why he thought the way he did, why the people on the other side thought the way they did. And that was the newsletter. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, virtually no one else did that. Um, I think, I think Paul Simon, the, uh, not the, uh, not the composer of Feeling Groovy, but uh, the uh, Illinois uh, Senator, uh, wrote his own newsletter, I believe. Uh, Mo Udall, Democratic Congressman from Arizona, may have. Jimmy Duncan, who uh, recently retired, uh, yep, Tennessee. a Republican from Tennessee, great guy, one of only six or seven Republicans to vote against the Iraq War. That's right. Duncan wrote his, but 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 very few do. And my, actually, my old boss, uh, Pat Moynihan, was a terrific admirer of Connable, though they also had a really complicated relationship. Uh, he wrote his own newsletter for a while, but... Uh, he uh, things got in the way, let us say. But if you bring up um, Moynihan and old bosses, um, just tell us briefly how you became acquainted with, with Barbara Conable and your personal relationship with the man. Uh, 
sure. Well, actually, it, it would go back, I guess, to 1979. I was I was in uh, Lyndon B. Johnson intern in his office, but uh, you know, I mean, intern, you know, I Xeroxed or whatever. I didn't I didn't really get to know him, uh, though I admired him. Um, and I uh, when I my wife and I moved back to my home area in the late 80s, and Carnival in '91 retired from the World Bank after serving a five-year term. Um, and he invited my wife and me over to the house for drinks. And uh, so for the next dozen years till his death in 2003, we became very good friends. We, uh, we also we served on the board of the local historical society together. And that's one of the interesting things in retirement. I mean, in the 36 years since Connable uh, left Congress, I think pretty much every member of Congress we've had hoard out as a lobbyist after leaving office. Um, Connable actually came home. <clears throat> um, he used to deliver, you know, probably once a month, uh, uh, a talk to a local group, s- service group, historical society, whatever. And these were really these witty extemporaneous talks. He had this encyclopedic knowledge of local history. Um, as I say, he was, he was on the historical society. He would, he would pitch in. I remember, I remember he was the, uh, at our annual yard sale, he's the guy who would uh, sit at the cash box and the then director of the Historical Society, Pat Weissen, uh, told him that he was uniquely qualified for this job uh, since he'd been a teller at the World Bank. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he was, <clears throat> it was just, he was so completely a man of his place. And so we, he came back and, uh, you know, if, and for those 12 years, I was, you know, I was really lucky to have, uh, I was really lucky to have befriended, you know, been his friend. And that's, uh, that's largely the reason why I undertook this project. Yeah. No, I, that's one thing that stands out through the book is how, as you said, the, the placidness or the rootedness. I think you are. You yeah. In fact, there's a, uh, you know, there's a great, uh, a great couple paragraphs. If I can, if I can, if I can read them to you, Absolutely. Uh, uh, Richard Fennell, the, the uh, political scientist, author of, of Home Style. Fennell writes, from the time we spent driving through the district during that first visit, I picked up something more basic and more permanent. It is his attachment to a place and to the values and practices of that place. His comment to me about the, his identification with the rural people of his district was almost poetic in nature because it came just as we left the four-lane superhighway from Rochester and turned onto the two-lane road to Byron. Suddenly, he said, it must be terrible to be without roots, without a place to call home. I have a profound sense of identification with these rural people. I worry about the rootlessness of our people, about the changes that are taking place in our values, which were, after all, pretty durable. Soon he brightened and said, it won't be long now. Here are the Byron suburbs. Those are Gerald Britt's beets growing over there. He grows 3% of all the edible beets in the United States. And that was actually one more, just one more uh, paragraph from, from Fenno. During my first visit, Carnival displayed another personal behavior pattern that distinguished him from every elective politician I would ever know. It was a distinctiveness related partly to share rural small town values, expectations, and partly to his self-confidence in connecting with his constituents. Not once in all our time together did a staff person accompany us, not in the car and not at any event. That, uh, that struck me as well, reading that. Um, and part of this because of the size of the congressional districts, you know, I mean, Madison worried what about, uh, was it 30,000 people per district then, 40,000, I forget. You know, now it's what, 750,000? I mean, there's, there's almost no chance that you will know your member of Congress. I mean, he or she exists only as a, a figure, you know, a one-dimensional figure on the screen. It's, uh, I mean, there's, there's just, you know, I mean, representative democracy just doesn't exist, I'm afraid, in the country anymore. I mean, I don't know what to do. I mean, Gene McCarthy, who was one of the 
you know, only really interesting creative political figures of uh, the recent years uh, proposed expanding the size of the house to, I don't know, something like 2000, but I mean, I don't know if that's practicable really. Well, I guess the house of commons kind of runs, runs that way with you know, much, much smaller districts. And, you know, for all it's, it's got plenty of its own faults, but, but uh, much smaller, much more representative in that way. Um, you yeah. Know. Or the, I mean, the, the other alternative is to, uh, to radically devolve powers uh, uh, to the provinces uh, so that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how many members of Congress you have. Right. Or it matters far less. Yeah. What's as you, as you were, obviously you knew the man well, but what stood out to you, you know, when you finally had a crack at, um, if memory serves, what'd you say? I think 400,000 words, you know, by, by dictaphone, the journals, when you took them before you started uh, cutting them down into, into a, um, into, into a size that people could digest and into a product like this. Um, but what's, what kind of surprised you or really stood out to you when you, when you get your hands on the journals? You know, I, well, the one, one thing is that there was uh, there's no artifice. I mean, what, what you saw when he was alive is what you got. And I know that I've talked to his, 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 his children and, uh, you know, they say the voice, I mean, the voice in these very personal journals, that's the voice they heard. I mean, they, they said they, I mean, they could hear their, their father's, you know, voice booming, this booming stentorian voice uh, as they're reading this. I mean, I, I, I think, though, that the, uh, the strain of the strain of melancholy uh, and also the, the, the frustration, you know, you're 20 years in the minority party. He was always in the minority party. Uh, when Wilbur Mills was uh, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Wills, Mills was a kind of uh, pragmatic consensus builder who would bring the Republicans in. Uh, on, mo- on some decisions, but he was succeeded by Al Ullman and then uh, Dan Rostenkowski, the Chicago machine Paul, you know, Mayor Daly's errand boy, um, who, and they essentially, you know, they, A, they stacked the, the committee um, uh, when Rostenkowski came in in 81, uh, I think it was a 23-14 ratio, which did not at all reflect the ratio of Democrats to Republicans in the, in the Congress as a whole. Um, you know, and they essentially, you know, Conable said that, uh, he had to achieve whatever he could achieve by by stratagems and by subterfuge and deviousness. And he said he he, he just tired of that. You know, I, I remember when I uh, I think it was probably the last time that I got together with him. We were having uh, drinks in his backyard and he said uh, this sort of wistfulness. He said, you know, he, he likened his accomplishments to uh, to footprints on a sandy beach. He said, whatever I did legislatively, he said, it's just, it's all been washed away by the tide. You know, I mean, the one, the interesting thing is the one, there's one enduring legislative accomplishment. Microbreweries. Yes. And I, yeah, yeah. The, the, right. the, the 1978 tax bill, a constituent, somebody he didn't even know well, asked him to insert some little thing in the, and he, so he did. And then it became it became the basis for the uh, the microbrewery and home brewing revolution. So that he's now honored by, you know, the microbrewers around the country as the legislative father of this. And he said, "I didn't even know what I was doing." You know, this was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's the, uh, the father of the American IPA, huh? Yes, yes. He unleashed an, an, an ocean of porters and IPAs, which for which I'm deeply grateful. But uh, it was purely by accident. Yeah, that, that, that's a funny, like that's that's the enduring legislative uh, legacy, at least, is, is, a, is a funny little piece of it. Um, yeah, no, I, let me ask you something about, um, I mean, really a big question, maybe maybe the big question in American political life right now is, 
is what the hell happened to Congress? I mean, I've never heard a, I've heard many people take stabs at this, and, and especially in the, the couple of years I've been living in Washington now. Um, when you want to talk about our present dysfunction, there's a, there's a host of cultural and, and sociological and economic reasons. But institutionally, the, the abdication of uh, responsibility and of, of willingness to legislate or even, even the oversight mechanism, um, that, that I've never heard a convincing explanation for what, how we got here. Um, and I'm wondering what, what you, if, if reading and editing uh, these journals, if, if, that's, if that's taught you anything in that regard, looking at, looking at Congress and institution by a man who was, I think, um, an institutionalist in some ways. And, and there have been people in, America, you know, in American political thought, Yuval Levin jumps to mind, who, who talk about just the, the complete dearth of institutionalists in Congress today, that, there's, that people want to be individuals, want to build their brands, want to do all that. Uh, or care about the party, but the actual institution of Congress and, and jealously guarding those institutional powers and prerogatives is, is almost dead. So did, did editing uh, the journal, did that, did that kind of uh, bring that home to you or, or give you a, a new take on why we are where we are with regard to Congress? Um, I mean, he was a, uh, you're not going to get a convincing explanation of that from me, but uh, I mean, he, he was a, uh, he was a very strong defender of the, uh, uh, the institutional prerogatives and integrity of the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, at least, at least early on. Um, but then the uh, the unfairness uh, with which he thought he'd been treated by Rostenkowski and the others. He uh, <clears throat> toward the end he's saying, "Look, I don't care if you know if, if these other committees strip certain responsibilities from Ways and Means. I mean, they're you know they're de they're dirty dealing us." Um, he did uh, one thing that Carnival worried about was the, uh, the the polarization of the parties. Um, the, uh, the disappearance of, say, liberal voices from the Republican Party and conservative voices from the Democratic Party, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he thought that, uh, I mean, it's partly as a pragmatic consensus builder, he thought it was best that these things, uh, issues should be hashed out within parties, with intramural debate, as well as, as, well as between parties. Um, and, he, and that's, I think, is one reason why... Uh, um, he really uh, uh, rude the rise of uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Um, and in this, when this, this was, I mean, he was. Uh, it, it, what's in, it, his predictions in this book? I mean, he was no Nostradamus. You know, he keeps saying, "Oh, Reg, you know, Reagan's candidacy is going to be a disaster for the Republican Party. We get wiped out. The party made." He was, he was a Bush guy. I mean, he got along yeah. well, thought very highly of H. W. Bush, right? Right. Yeah. He was a well. He and he and Bush had been uh, backbench colleagues in his. Right. Uh, uh, for the first couple of years in, in ways and means. And he thought that uh, he thought Bush was an able guy and he liked him. He strongly recommended against uh, strongly advised Bush not to make the 1970 run for the Senate, uh, which right. he did and lost. Um, yeah. And so he was head of the Bush H.W. Bush's steering committee in 1980. He was a, a promoter of Bush. Uh, he later, uh, I think he revised his opinion in later years. Mm -hmm. He thought that, uh, as Reagan's vice president, Bush was much too timid. Mm -hmm. um, uh, wouldn't speak up at meetings and that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a fascinating portrait of of Congress. I mean, that might to me, you know, Conable's substantial, um, maybe in some ways unique virtues aside, it's it, it's interesting. Probably the the, the average readers um, should pick it up really for a picture of Congress as an institution of of somebody of an honest man navigating that. I think. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's, as I said, it's, you know, I mean, I, I guess the uh, uh, the classic 
Congressional Diaries out of John Quincy Adams, which is kind of choleric and splenetic and and, and very interesting. More acerbic, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Since then, I mean, Aiken and the senator from Vermont uh, did a decent one. Uh, Don Regal, who was a congressman from uh, Michigan, later a senator. But again, that was, I mean, there's... Uh, there's 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 not much. I mean, this is a this is a really interesting from the inside a portrait. I mean, there's a lot of inside baseball stuff. It's not like it's uh, you know going to be compelling reading to someone who's not interested in politics. But uh, he, in fact, he says at a couple of points in the uh, in the journal, he says, you know what this uh, this may end up being my uh, you know my most significant con- the most significant contribution of my congressional years maybe this journal. So I mean he. Yeah. He, he envisioned, I think, its publication, though he certainly never sought it, and uh, it was embargoed for X number of years after he donated it, uh, because he, uh, I mean, he, he speaks harshly of a number of people, and he, he didn't want to embarrass them, I think, even the scoundrels. Right. And he was, I think, predeceased by a lot of those people, obviously. Yeah, yeah, they're almost, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny, the, when he talks about, like, the Young Turks, the Young Turks are now 80 years old, you know, those who are still alive. Right. It's, uh, it's hard to believe this stuff. He, you know, he was he first elected almost 60 years ago, which is. Yeah. It's interesting there, too, that he came in, as you said, in a wake of, of Goldwater, of this false dawn for, for conservatism or maybe maybe more accurately, the conservative movement. I think mm-hmm. a better way of putting that, um, which is a, I think a more justly a more loaded term. But comes in the wake of that. And then he leaves in some ways at what what in theory I don't think either of us is, is really a Reaganite, but uh, he leaves in some ways at what's sort of the, the height of the triumph of American conservatism, right? He, he steps aside in 84 as, as right. you know, Reagan has, has just uh, swept all before him um, and, and is having some some actual policy and governing impacts too, obviously. Um, you know, it's both political and policy-wise. So it's interesting that he leaves at that moment kind of worn out um, and, and, and steps aside at what is putatively the, the triumph of his party and, and, and of his side. Right. 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 He, le- he, he leaves it morning in America, right. 1984. Yeah. He, uh, uh, he, I think he saw the, I think he saw the coming twilight. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it's an interesting, interesting career arc. Um, and as you said, it was a, a surprise that he was appointed to the world bank, right. He had no banking or really. Um, yeah. I mean, there'd always, there are always, they're, yeah, there always been speculation that he'd be appointed uh, treasury secretary particularly in the, uh, in the Ford White House, since he was, uh, you know, he, he, he's interested, he's interesting on, on, on Ford. I mean, he never, he never had any illusions about Ford's capacities, you know, uh, as, uh, you know, House Minority Leader. Um, he didn't think he was brilliant or uh, even always particularly competent, but, uh, but he thought he was, uh, he was a decent and honest man and, uh, you know, the right man for the moment when he was, you uh, Became president in the wake of Nixon's resignation. You obviously you had to find stuff to chop, and you had to sort of uh, try to focus on what you saw as, as the most uh, most salient and and important pieces of this. You said most of most of his sort of ruminations or discussion of foreign policy are are, are, are cut out. And, and you mentioned earlier, and you say in the book as well, this is a man who was a certainly a localist and and, and a pacifist in a lot of ways, or close to it. But and it was an America Firster, along with you know he was a, I think a classmate right a year maybe the same year a year apart with, with Kurt Vonnegut at Cornell right and they yeah were yeah Firsters yeah he was together. he was a year or two ahead of Vonnegut but yeah but Vonnegut was a Vonnegut was an editorialist for the uh, the Cornell Daily Sun and uh, Vonnegut, Vonnegut was also an America Firster um, and uh, Gonable said that in later years Vonnegut would come around his office 
lobbying for tax deductions for authors. So, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. yeah. And so he, he had those, you know, that kind of grounding. But as you said, uh, like like a lot of many, if not not most, America Firsters, he uh, he enlisted, you know, right right after Pearl Harbor, more or less. Um, and and not only that, fought in fought in Iwo Jima. Um, so his his foreign policy views, I think. May are, are interesting, and in, in that he was a um, you know uh, a localist and 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 a pacifist and someone not inclined to support American intervention. But he ended up being, when it came to Vietnam, he was sort of sort of found himself stuck in the middle and sort of reluctantly endorsed the war. Um, and I, you know, and I'm not sure where he stood on on Reagan's outwardly bellicose, but in some ways kind of more real more realist foreign policy that evolved in, in the first term. Yeah, he was. Uh... Obviously, he was not. A, he was not a pacifist. Uh, he was not a Mark Hatfield in the uh, no. in the House. Um, he was. Uh, he was. I, he admired Kissinger. He was something of a Kissingerian realist. He uh, he applauded uh, detente. Uh, uh, he was very much in favor of the opening to China. Uh, he was in favor of uh, uh, trade with Eastern Europe. Uh, most favored nation status for Romania. Things like that. Uh, in favor of the Panama Canal treaties. Uh, but he was a, uh, I mean, he was a reluctant supporter of Vietnam. Um, uh, he, he didn't, he, he writes very little about it and it's always kind of mournfully, you know, uh, we're here and I, I don't, I don't know what we can do. Yeah. yeah. And he, uh, and also he was, uh, but also, I mean, he was as a member of ways of me, he was a very strong committee man, you know, I mean, he spent almost all his congressional energies on committee work. And obviously that, with the exception of like the most favored nation stuff, foreign policy just didn't figure into his work. Right. Um, yeah. He. Uh, yeah. And he, uh, it's interesting that in his uh, in his campaigns, uh, he never mentioned Iwo Jima in his campaigns. He never talked about his his services. His daughters have told me he never he never spoke of the war. Although yeah. many years later there was a, a reunion, I think, of some of the fellows he'd served with. And he he read them some poems he'd he'd written, uh, you know, while he's waiting on the ship. Um, but it's uh, it's just interesting. He never. I, I think he thought it would be really tawdry to uh, to exploit his military background. You know, um, he just even uh, you know even in '74 when he's getting hammered by Mitch Costanza, never mentions it. He brought it up. Yeah, he almost reminds me of a kid who's uh, a kid who's always like ranking. Uh, you know. Uh, football or baseball players or something every couple of years he ranks the members of the ways and means doesn't rank him but he he gives his assessments and uh you know uh he's, he tends to be critical of most of these p- people um but there are always like four or five six members that uh, he really admires um yeah. and the interesting thing is that the, he's wholly bipartisan you know there are a couple of uh, uh a couple of republicans friends of minnesota steiger of uh, wisconsin um, whom he esteems, uh, and then some of the most liberal Democrats, Abner Mikva of Illinois, uh, Richard Bowling of Missouri, also. I mean, he uh, he seemed to uh, he had a soft spot for the really smart guys who weren't very clubbable. It's a, it's a fascinating portrait of him, and as you said, the portraits he paints of other people, um, the both both the the high and mighty presidents, and 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 kind of some figures that we'd still remember today, and then a lot of people that, unless you're a real student of congressional or American political history, uh, you just, just wouldn't be on your radar. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. It kind of, it, those portraits are a big part of, of the book. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, he's, uh, 
he's, he's interesting on Moynihan. If I could, if I could just read this thing that he, Carnival told me that uh, a little story, a little set two he had with Moynihan, and it uh, it's uh, it's very interesting. I think on Moynihan and on the whole idea of uh, uh, that we all play certain roles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I mean, his view of Moynihan, his relationship with Moynihan went back to when Moynihan was the urban affair, Nixon's urban affairs guy. Um, and he was immediately taken with him. He thought, you know, this guy's witty. This guy's charming. He's kind of a bad boy. Um, and then he's elected in 76, uh, kind of voted for him in 76, always voted, always voted for him. But his view, you know, he, he says, look, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes this guy's terrific. And sometimes he's a jowl shaking party hack, you know, and a blatherer. And they they get into these quarrels off and on, um, but he uh, he told he, Carnival told me Carnival told me this. Senator Jack Danforth had a little social security amendment that was stupid and wasn't going to go anywhere. We had a conference on the bill that included this amendment of his. Nobody on the House side wanted it, and not many on the Senate side. But Moynihan gets up and makes a speech about this wonderful amendment. Jack was looking over at us and hoping someone would say something on the House side. I finally got up and said I hadn't really supported this at the outset, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was something we could live with. Pat was sitting at the other end of the semicircle of conferees. He took his pencil out of his mouth, threw it down on the table, and bounced way up. He stalked around the back of the circle, came over and sat in the empty seat next to me and said, Now, Connable, are you or are you not an unreconstructed conservative Republican upstate bastard? I said, <laughs> now, don't give me a tough time on this, Pat. You supported it. He said, Yes but I am not an unreconstructed conservative Republican upstate bastard. I said, well, Pat, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. And I wanted to give a little vote of confidence to Jack Danforth, the sweet man. Don't worry. None of my boys are going to vote for it. And he said, well, Carnival, I want to tell you, if you aren't an unreconstructed conservative Republican upstate bastard, what good are you? That's, that's a heck of a way to close. Yeah. Um, that morning, um, let me, let me pull back. Well, we got you here for a few more minutes, Bill. Um, pull away from the book a little bit and, and, and talk more broadly and some of the other things you're writing on. How do you, how do you feel uh, going far away from place and rootedness and just the opposite? How, how, do you feel any more, maybe one thing not to be pessimistic about now, American foreign policy in the wake of the Trump years, not, not and I don't speak of any real uh, accomplishments there, but just what, what if there's any silver lining in, in, in that uh, administration, it's what that election revealed about, about maybe a, a lingering, um, pacifism or certainly um, sort of a, sort of an embryonic non-interventionism in the American body politic that may have been, that may have been decisive in the 2016 election. I don't, I think oh, it's very yeah. easy, you know, tight election, you can paint that a million different ways, but I think there's, I think there's something to that. And I think it's interesting that we are finally, it's, it's a lot more rhetoric than reality, but you were finally getting far, far too late, maybe a pushback against endless wars or forever wars. That rhetoric has caught hold and has some real purchase. And I, I think maybe there's, maybe that, got the risk of being optimist maybe there's there's something meaningful there and something to, to take hold of oh yeah well I think it's <clears throat> I think it's always uh, you know even in the uh, end of the height of the American century it was always it was always latent and once in a while it would flare up I mean even at the, the height of you know like in the 50s that I think it was the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations do these polls and you still had like one third of Americans that were opposed to US troops in Europe it's always interested me that I think the most underused word in American political uh, discussion is the word is home you know yeah. it's i mean it's you never you never hear it and uh and yet you know out here out here in the hinterlands uh you know i mean 
people view foreign policy, the, the, the forever wars. I mean, they uh, they personalize it. And, you know, yeah, the kid, the kid down the street should be should be home rather than over fighting for God knows what overseas. And I think that I think political figures who phrase it that way. Um, and I think that has great purchase. Yeah, you, you have small segments in each party at the elite levels, but there's such a disjunction between elite opinion and, you know, opinion on the street where, uh, where, you know, there's a, a, I think a significant percentage of American people would be in favor of significant cuts to the defense budget and the withdrawal of our troops from most of the world. Um, yeah. When, when, I mean, when's the last time that American public opinion had any influence at all on American foreign policy? Right. Right. I mean, that's, it's become such, it's such an elite game and it's, it's so easy. It's also easy to hide it. Right. I mean, there've been books written about this and plenty of, plenty of study of this of just that you can hide the cost of empire as long as, as long as Americans aren't coming home in, in body bags frequently uh, short of that, you can, you can kick the costs down the road or under the rug. And it's, it's very easy uh, mm-hmm. that never mind all the sort of intangible impacts of empire and American political, political life and the body politic and the culture. Uh, and speaking of home, coming back around to speaking of home, uh, the, the Batavia Muck Dogs have survived. I know people, any of your regular readers know uh, you're a you're a huge minor league, not so much major league, but minor league baseball fan. Uh, and they've, your uh, your beloved hometown club has survived, but in kind of a new incarnation, right? We did. We were uh, we were the birthplace of uh, it was called the Pony League then, later called the New York Penn League in 1939, which was the longest continuously operating Class A baseball league in the country. And in this past off season, Rob Manfred, whom I regret to say is an up, a native upstate New Yorker, he's a commissioner of baseball, essentially murdered 40-some minor league teams. He just he just wiped us out. It's just, right. And also took over the rest of the minors, renamed the minor leagues. It's it's just an astonishingly uh, was there was a little congressional pushback, but there uh, was some, yeah. Bernie Sanders, yeah. bless his heart, and a, and a few yeah. and a few others, but uh Anyway, we uh, Batavia was one of the franchises that was uh, eliminated, but we, uh, you know, maybe everything that dies someday comes back. We uh, uh, we reemerged this year in a con- in a collegiate league, uh, which the season just ended. It was a little bit shorter than uh, than professional than low A ball, but uh, with great attendance, a lot of enthusiasm by the players outside. Outside, you know, under the uh, under God's skies, uh, you know, with real wooden bats and the, the sound of, you know, balls hitting gloves and such. So it was great. Baseball, uh, you know, baseball at the, at the grassroots level indoors. Bill, let me ask you a question that's maybe a little bit self-interested. I'm going to be teaching an intro to American politics course in the fall. If you were putting together a syllabus for a course like that, a survey, first year of college course on American government, what kind of things would you include? I mean, you've got to get through the Federalist, you know, how a bill becomes a law. Um, but what sort of things are, are overlooked or missed in a course like that? Wow. Well, for one thing, the, anti- the Anti-Federalists, who uh, I think were, uh, were dead on on almost everything. Uh, you might uh, use my uh, biography of Luther Martin, the, uh, the most valuable Anti-Federalist, but I don't want to do an advertisement for myself. Uh, you know, William Eppelman Williams said, what, no, I, no ideas, but in things. I, uh, I always thought no ideas, but in people. I mean, how about, how about some biography, um, you know, of uh, either representative figures or exemplary figures? Uh, what can we do? Um, uh, 
uh, I don't know, but maybe some of the Henry Adams uh, stuff that in the education of Henry Adams that has to do with uh, uh, his political. Uh, you don't want to make him read like the histories of the Jefferson and Madison administration. How about how about uh, the two best books of Gore Vidal's uh, uh, historical set of historical novels, Burr and Lincoln? Let me ask you about about you as a writer. You're incredibly prolific. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, ten or eleven books now, and and uh, I don't know how many thousands of of uh, columns and and reviews and interviews and, and everything else you've done over your career um, as as a you know a real working writer. But um, this this project obviously uh, is, is a unique kind of animal in terms of editing the journals. But in general, what's your writing process like? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say when people ask me like writing a book or something, I always say that uh, I, I never write from like begin on page one and end on page three hundred. Yeah. I mean, I just Neander. like it's all it's all over the place. And then I I figure at the end, usually kind of the architecture will 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 reveal itself. Mm. And uh, often I kind of fit the pieces um so you very rarely go in with a with a formal outline ahead of time you no just, never get right never and then it, you never you never kind of call I, and organize I, and, and do all that afterwards yeah i hmm. i should i mean i shouldn't say never i mean obviously some things like uh ain't my america you know the one about the uh, yep. sure uh, the anti-war tradition in this country i mean yeah i knew i had to cover you know certain uh uh events and such Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I tend to, I'll, 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 I'll skip around from here to there and then eventually I'll kind of fit it together. All at the together. end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever written page one. I don't know. I, I doubt if page one has ever been the first thing I've written. Hmm. Bill, thanks again for joining us. This was a great, um, great discussion. Really, really got a lot out of it. Um, and I hope one of these years I'll get, get to a muck dogs game with you. Yeah, you guys, you guys are both welcome anytime you want. Next next summer, you know, the, it's a June-July season. As I say, they just missed the playoffs this year, but love to see you. Yeah, hope to do it. We've been speaking with author and editor Bill Kaufman, and we've been joined by Gil Barndoller, a senior research fellow at CSS. This has been an episode of Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. Encounters is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and at our website, css.cua.edu. Thanks for listening. Until next time.